Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, Clearedcast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello, hello, and welcome to this episode of Clearedcast, your security clearance careers podcast. I'm Katie Keller, Editorial Communications Manager with ClearanceJobs.com, and today I'm really excited. We're going to get a different take on the contracting process. So Kevin Jans, he is the president and founder of Skyway Acquisition Solutions and spent some time in the Department of Defense as a contracting officer. So today we're actually going to see what the heck is the contracting officer thinking. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Excellent. So Skyway Acquisition Solutions. Let's hear about that, but let's hear more about your background and your experience. 16 years on the government side as a contracting officer and other roles. And essentially, we now have a team that includes 12 former contracting officers. And we provide training and consulting to help people understand what is a contracting officer thinking. That's the puzzle we solve. The problem we solve for customers is that they want to know, I need to understand what the buyer is thinking in this process. And so that's the gap that we fill. Sure. Former recruiter. That is certainly something that I was interested in from a staffing perspective, but you also manage, you co-host a podcast as a part of sort of this puzzle that you're solving for folks seeing what the contracting officer is thinking. So you do have an episode that talks a little bit about the three deciders and the contracting officer being one of those three players. So could you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. It's the contracting officer podcast and it's our 334 episodes every week for going on seven and a half years. And the idea is that we share stories now that we've been on both sides of the market. One of those stories is from episode 118, which was a while ago. And we talk about who are the three deciders. So the three deciders are the people who have some influence on who wins a contract. And the three deciders are the economic decider, the person that has the money, the customer, the person that has the need, and the contracting officer, the person that can take the money from the economic decider and buy the thing that the actual user needs. The important part to consider is that all three are different for different reasons. For example, the contracting officer doesn't have any money. They don't have a requirement. So until those two things exist, there's no reason for them to talk to you, which is why they blow you off, right? Likewise, if the contracting officer and the economic decider get together, they're going to make a great contract that's fully funded to buy something nobody wants. And then if the contracting officer and the customer get together, then they've got a great contract that buys what everybody wants, but no money. So you need all three of them and understanding at what point each one of them you should be talking to, what they care about at different points, what their roles are. For example, lawyers technically fall under the contracting officer group. A contracting officer's representative actually falls under the customer group. So you start to see where these different people fit and then you understand, oh, that's why they're not talking to me now because they don't care yet. Or, oh, they cared two weeks ago. Whoops. So you have to be careful understanding what each one of these deciders cares about and why. Sure. And I feel like that can be, especially for new contractors entering the space, sort of understanding those relationships or understanding those communications. And they almost, you know, are acting as sort of a balancing act. I'm interested to hear your perspective. I know that one of the biggest frustrations that I had when I was a contractor is When contractors are going after these different contracts, there's sort of this 
tenuous relationship between balancing the mission fulfillment and bidding the lowest price. And so I'm interested to hear from a contracting officer perspective, is that sort of something that contracting officers are taking into consideration as well? Or how does that look like from your end? If you're asking me, what am I going to buy based on? And I don't understand the difference between this solution and that solution. I'm going to go with the part I understand, which is price. Sure. So an LPTA, a lowest price or some kind of lower price purchase is because the contracting officer did not get enough evidence from one of the other deciders, the customer normally, on why it's worth paying more for something. And so, for, for example, there's a reason that, that you and I might not pay a half a million dollars for a McLaren because we don't understand why it's worth that much to somebody. But there are people that pay that much, right? So take that same idea as a contracting officer until I can understand or at least document and be able to stand behind it when it's protested or, or when I'm challenged on it. I need to be able to say, this is why we paid more. Without that, I'm going to go to low price because that's easy to justify. It's binary. It's like it was lower price. That's why I bought it. Does that make sense? Yeah, Absolutely. But again, that was sort of my biggest frustration with recruiting is, you know, when things were LPTA, you know, where things get slashed is uh, salaries, uh, the folks that, mm-hmm. you know, the billet. That was my biggest frustration. So just to hear it from, you know, the other end, the CEO, uh, I, I was just interested to hear a little bit more about so that. I'll, I'll, I'll pull the string some more on that for you. The way to solve yeah. that problem is we talk about, and we do a lot of training on these three deciders, and we talk mm-hmm. about how to relate between them. One of the concepts we talk about is having currency between them. And so as a salesperson or as a recruiter, when you're talking to the customer, you need to give them currency that they can use to help influence the contracting officer's decision. One of those things is why is this worth more? Okay. Another way is if that user understands why we're using, for example, this contract vehicle versus that one. Mm -hmm. The contracting officer is looking for the path of least resistance. If I know I can get this contract in place on an existing contract vehicle, but it's going to cost $10 an hour more, I'm making up that number. I'll be okay with that because it's the path of least resistance to get the work done. Versus if I look at, oh, this one is cheaper and it's going to be faster to award, I'm going to go there. It might not be the best solution for the customer. But without that context, we have a whole episode about context. You hear us say that word constantly. That's usually what's missing. The reason a contracting officer will make a decision that looks like a crazy decision is they usually lack context because they don't understand how the customer and or the economic decider might be impacted. So the more you can educate your government customer so they can educate the contracting officer on the impact of using this vehicle, the impact of not paying this person as much, the better you're going to look because you're influencing that, that overall solution. And you're giving that user, the customer, the government customer, the ability to talk to contracting officer, speak the contracting officer's language. Sure. When you do that, the, the net result is much better. And, and the reason I know this is I didn't realize this was happening to me when I was a contracting officer, but the times that the program manager and the customer would come to me with, this is why we should use this contract vehicle. This is why we should sole source it. Here are three or four reasons why we should only use this company for this. Mm-hmm. As opposed to saying, hey, they look better and then expect them me to figure it out. So sure. Push back on that, right? So you see how this, this idea of what kind of currency can you give to the customer? And the best part about this is the customer, that's the, that's the user, the person that needs the service or needs to hire this, this person to help them. They're usually the most visible. They're also the one that's more, most likely to talk to you because mm-hmm. they have the problem that needs to be solved. They want to talk. They want to talk to the recruiter because they say, I need this person. Whereas the contracting officer, until there's money, <laughs> until there's a requirement, 
they'll talk to me. So that's the person you're going to spend the most of your time with. And that's how you can leverage that relationship with the three deciders the most. Okay, wonderful. I mean, that's excellent advice. And that's something that I never really was exposed to as a recruiter, but sort of embedding yourself in the process That is something that I talk about when it comes to responding to RFPs, when it comes to market research and providing salaries that actually make sense for the market. When people are going through the proposal capture process, they're going to try to do lowest price because money is, you know, one of those factors. Involving yourself with the program managers, with the maybe not direct discussions with the customers, but at least having a general understanding of that context. That's something that I certainly never had when I was supporting contractors. Are there any other repercussions, you know, that you can see from that balance or um, everything that we just discussed? One of the things that makes it easier for the contracting officer to understand the impact is when we can say things like, if we structure the RFP in this way, everybody's going to bid. And usually that's because the the requirement's not well-defined. It's because it sounds like anybody can do it. It's because the the requirement for the capability of the people providing the service isn't clearly understood. Therefore, it's not clearly understood by the offers. So as a contracting officer, the last thing I, well, one of, one of the last things I want is a hundred proposals. I really want like three to five great proposals from people who can actually solve this problem. I can get through the selection process and solve my customer's problem and move on to the next thing. If I get a hundred opportunity or a hundred proposals, 90 of which are people just throwing darts, mm-hmm. that's not good because it's going to take longer. It's a lot, it's, it's not value added work. And oh, by the way, I wasted the time of 90 companies that can't even win. So that idea of if you, again, this is a currency thing. If the customer comes to me and says, for the following three reasons, if we write the requirement this way, too many companies are going to bid. Mm-hmm. And as a contracting officer, I hear that thinking, well, that's going to make my job take longer. It's not going to solve the problem of getting the, the, the service here. And it, it's, it's not the path of least resistance. So that's one of the ways that you can tactically approach this issue and say, the way this is worded, it's going to get too many proposals. Now you can push that too far if it's worded in such a way that say, the person has to be a retired E7 that worked in this office and has brown hair. So okay, it's that guy you're trying to hire. That's right. a different problem because then you're going to get protested over that. But in between those two is, is a lot of, of gray area. And you, you want to push down to be able to say, we want three to five really good proposals, not a hundred different ones. And something I didn't see as a contracting officer is that if it is a wide open requirement, a lot of times the companies that actually are really good are going to filter it out and not bid anyway, because they know they can't win it. If, if, it's, if 50 companies are bidding, the likelihood of you actually being able to win on anything other than price gets harder. Whereas if there's three to five, because the requirement's well-defined, then it's going to be easier to actually solve the problem and, and win the work. And, and frankly, go back to the core reason we do all this, solve the customer's problem. Sure. If the contract doesn't solve the customer's problem, then you know, we're, we're just pushing paper around. Mm. It's not very value added. Sure. Any steps that you could share today for defense contractors to better position themselves you know, having a relationship with the customer is obviously one, but any others that you could share today? So the, the biggest one, we talk about targeting on our podcast all the time. Uh, if you go to contractpodcast.com and, and type targeting into the search bar, you'll find a good number of episodes. We have at least five or six that have that in the title. But, but that's probably the biggest thing is know what the target is for you, for your organization. What, what does the perfect customer look like? Realizing they're hard to find. It's hard to find the perfect customer, but you need to be able to have some clue of what are we not going after? And it starts with the agency, you know, the kind of service, et cetera. But it also builds into things like what are the evaluation criteria? 
what contract vehicle is this going to be on? What are the likelihood this is going to be a, a knife fight over price? What is the likelihood that the, the government's not going to allow this to be a small business set aside or that they will require it to be? All of those factors should be part of your targeting exercise. Uh, we did a, a series of episodes back in the 200s and it was called Qualifying Opportunities. And it's based on our RFP score. We have a, a system we call the RFP score that allows government contractors to decide, I can score this and know what, what are the chances of me actually being able to compete. Well, we took those concepts and put them into the podcast episodes. So if you search for qualifying opportunities, you'll find those episodes. But that walks you through. These are the kind of things like, is this going to be a small business set aside? How well does the customer know me? Have I leveraged that relationship? Is there a relationship at all? And I just find this opportunity. Like all, some of those are obvious, but then you get into the ones of, of things like, what is the length of this contract? How long is it going to take to award? Can I survive the protest window where I've won the contract in quotes but I'm not making any revenue for a few months while we work through this. There's all these factors that come into contracts that should be part of your targeting exercise. And then the last thing I'll say on targeting is the concept of weight class. One of the things we talk about, and I think it's the first time we we brought up weight class was like episode 16, way back in the day, like 300 episodes ago. And the idea is there are things that you can do and there are things that you can do well. And there are things that because of the way the government is buying them, you're not very likely to win. If you're out of your weight class, it's things like, hey, I've got this giant $100 million contract, but I've only ever won a $2 million contract. You're setting yourself up for failure. And as a contracting officer, for me to, for me to argue to set this aside for, a small, for types of small businesses, even though I know this is a giant contract, there needs to be a lot of evidence to prove that a small company can do this. For you to invest your time in that, you got to know that it's going to be in your weight class. And that concept helps people understand on top of the fact that you can do it and you could win it. But can you survive the competitive process? Can you put in the work it takes to make this an 8A sole source to you, given that it's a $21 million contract? And lots of companies are making the argument that it should be a sole source 8A award to them. So that whole exercise and all of the pieces within it is what is really an important part of targeting. I can keep Sure. That. Well, and, you know, listening through all these rubrics and all of this criteria that defense contractors should really be going through before they even think about going after something, do you think, you mentioned throwing darts, do you think that's one of the issues that a lot of defense contractors are, or new-ish ones are facing? They are just kind of willy-nilly going after things? I would go even further and say it's not even the newish ones. It's, it's human yeah. nature. I mean, I, yeah. I've, I'm sure that I've thrown darts. Just, mm-hmm. because, just because you can win it, just because it, is, it could be a good opportunity, the time that you're spending, that could be the equivalent of throwing a dart. Mm-hmm. Formerly, we're thinking, okay, you're throwing a proposal. That, that could be your, your actual, like, that's the large dart. But the time that you spend building up to deciding to no bid, the sooner you do that, the more time you have to go out to, to throw other darts. So sure. it is, it's very easy to, to slip into the pattern. Uh, like for us, the perfect customer for us is a current government contractor who has five or more employees. Does that mean that we can't help people that are brand new? No, but they're not going to get the most value from us because they don't know how to work with a contracting officer. They've never done it before. They haven't had a contract yet. Once you've had a contract, you get the value of how, how enlightening, encouraging, maddening, and frustrating it all can be to work with a contracting officer at the same time. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a different scenario, right? So that's why we figured out that's what targeting is for us. But that mindset, it's hard. When, when I have an inbound person calls and says, hey, can you help me with this? I'm thinking, you don't have a contract yet. We're not a right fit for you. I need to find somebody else that can help you. I just did that yesterday morning, actually. But it's hard because you want to help people and you, you see opportunity everywhere. Well, it's a government contractor because beta.fam.gov is full of opportunity. It's even harder 
Because if you put in put in search terms, you're going to see stuff that you could do in air quotes all the time. So to have your rubric to be able to filter through them as quickly as possible is critical. And I, again, I don't think it's just new companies. I think it's a, sure. it's a constant battle. And then here's the frustrating part is what you target evolves over time. And so when our rule used to be 10 employees, and now it's down to five. In fact, when I started Skyway, I would take revenue from wherever I could find it. Because when you're getting a company off the ground, you do. Well, now we've kind of evolved into this is who, who we actually can help. Maybe five years from now, it's different. When somebody listens to this in 2026, mm-hmm. our, our standard may be different. But that's why targeting is so, so important is it's a constantly moving target. <laughs> I overuse the word target. Well, no, that's a great point. People and companies are dynamic. Things change, requirements change, projections change. And, you know, one thing I will say when I was supporting contractors, I think the other issue is when contractors see something that they can do or they think they can do, and then they do win a contract and then it's mismanaged and then you build up a reputation for yourself. So those rubrics are really important. I'm really interested to hear, and I know that our Clarence Jobs audience really loves these horror stories. Any contracting officer horror stories that you could share with us or scare us with today? How much time you got? So a recent one that came up is a, a, a customer that called us and they had lost track of their contract. They weren't staying engaged with their government customer and the contract had been awarded to somebody else. They didn't exercise the option and they awarded it to somebody else. And the, the contractor was frustrated and the contracting officer said, well, I didn't think you were around. Mm-hmm. So the horror story there is that the contracting officer, okay, should have been more active, right? Because it's a contract they already had. But here's the scary part. When I was first a contracting officer, when I went, we're talking like you know, late 90s, I think I had like 57 contracts that I managed, you know, managed, right? Mm-hmm. If one of them had dropped off, would I have actually known? <laughs> Until I needed them. I mean, they, they were providing services. Some of them were providing products. These are the scary ones. If you're providing a product and then we don't need that product for six months and in that six months, a pandemic happens and all of a sudden right. you're not there. I, I may assume that when you didn't email me back, you went out of business and I moved on. So the scary part from the company officer perspective is I, I, I'm assuming the companies are going to, my, my companies, I say that because I, I signed the contracts with them, mm-hmm. that they're going to be there. But from a contractor perspective, make sure that they know you're there, <laughs> especially when the economy takes a hit. Like in 2008, there are a lot of companies that, that went away. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a, a weird window that we'd call up and say, oh, yeah, I'm glad you called. We were almost out of business. We needed the order to, to keep the, the lights on. Wow. Yeah. Contracting officers have no context for that. I, I, I had, other than what's going on in, in the overall stock market, if we happen to pay attention to that, the government market from, a, from the buyer's side, it's pretty stable. When the economy's on fire back in 98, I wasn't getting raises like all my friends. And likewise, in 2008, 2008 10, 10 years later, I wasn't on the unemployment line like some of my friends. It's stable, right? Well, because of that, they may or may not know all the fact that I said they will not know the things that are going on in the economy. Don't be surprised when they're shocked by what's going on. Speaking of things going on in the economy, I had a contractor that was factoring to, to pay their employees. I, I didn't even know what that was. He said, I'm having to factor this. I had to go Google it. it turns out, you know, it's kind of like a, it's a, a borderline loan sharking way to, to manage your finances where you basically say, Here, here's my, uh, my receivables. You're going to pay me for them, keep a cut of it, and you're going to go make sure that, that, that we actually get paid. Well, with the government, the government's going to pay you. It may take a while, but they're going to pay you, right? Well, because we were slow paying this company so badly and didn't know it, right? They were having to factor it, which 
the margins were already pretty low on this contract. And on top of that, they're having to, to factor it to make sure that they're paying their employees. I had no clue of that. So yeah. again, don't be surprised if the contracting officer has no clue of what cash flow is. They don't train us on that on, on the mm-hmm. government side. Like even, even when I took, I got a, you know, a master's degree and they didn't teach us about cash flow the way that I manage it now as a small company. It is a mm-hmm. different animal, right? So those kind of things that the governments might not, I would say might not, but almost guaranteed to not understand well. And then relevant to, to this concept of, of you know, the clearance job stuff is the amount of work it takes to find people who can do certain things, particularly when they're cleared. That mm-hmm. I've got stories galore of that, of somebody coming in with a, go back to your point before, of, of a lower price saying, hey, we can find these, company, these people that, to do this work. And then after they get the award, surprise, they can't find them. Now, without any context to know why they can't, I can't ding them during the evaluation criteria, during the evaluation process for the award. But if I know that a software developer who works in Washington, D.C. in 2019, you're no way you're going to find one for less than $60,000 a year. Nobody makes less than 60K who knows how to do anything with computers in D.C., period, right? But if I don't know that, if I don't, if I don't have documented context of that, and here, here's, this, here's the frustrating part, it shouldn't be just from your proposal. And this is why it's, we talk a lot about being ahead of, of an RFP, mm-hmm. helping the government understand, helping that customer, back to the currency exercise, helping that customer understand, according to Indeed, this is how much these people make. So if we see anybody that bids 20% below this, they're mm-hmm. not going to be able to fill these positions. That's a much more compelling story for me to put into my, my source selection evaluation board report that says sure. I'm removing this company from the competitive range because their price is unreasonable, right? Mm-hmm. It's not reasonable for this to happen. We did an episode recently. It's the difference between unreasonable and unrealistic. So unreasonable is too high. Unrealistic is too low. You can't get there from here, right? Mm-hmm. But either one of those need to be evaluation criteria. So here's one of those little standards I tell people. If, so you're a recruiter or you're a business development person, you're trying to convince the government to not do, not walk into a scenario where the price is too low. Tell them to do a unreasonable as well as an unrealistic evaluation. By using both of those in the evaluation criteria, the government then has the ability to say, that's an unrealistic price. You can't do it for that. But if they don't have that language in there, if that's not one of the clauses that's in the evaluation criteria... Barring any other data that says that the company can't do it for this, they have to award to them. Because if the evaluation criteria says lowest price and they can't prove it's an unrealistic price, they're stuck on them. Mm-hmm. It's a horrible scenario, but it, yeah, it's it sounds so that, like a scary yeah, scenario. <laughs> it is. And it's, it's, you can work around it. But again, it's the path of most resistance is working mm-hmm. around it. And as a contracting officer, my job is to get these contracts awarded and provide this products and services to my user. Well, if I have to go through these wickets over and over and over again, eventually I'm like, you know what? I just got to award this contract. And you mm-hmm. end up with lowest price. Wow. There's three. Yeah. <laughs> what a process. Certainly complicated. Something that was, I, I've gained a lot of insight from this conversation was something that went over my head, but was something that was, you know, frustrated me was this whole process. So any advice that you could share for becoming a contracting officer, it sounds like a lot going on in your brain, <laughs> but are careers that could transition well into being a contracting officer because it is an important cog in the government machine for sure. Yeah, I, I would say the, the things, a lot, right now a lot of folks are uh, attorneys are becoming contracting officers, which is, mm-hmm. that's, that's part of it. 
part of the challenge of being an attorney as a contracting officer is that attorneys are wired to be defensive. You're creating a risk less environment as much as they can. That's the, the essence of an NDA is, is to avoid risk, right? Mm-hmm. Well, probably if you're a contracting officer who's wired to avoid risk, you're not going to get as much done. You're not going to try new things. It's going to take longer to get things done. And I say this because early in my career, I was wired that way. And then the further I went along, I realized that the very few things that, that you'll get in trouble for, once you know how to avoid those, like don't spend money you don't have. Okay. Mm-hmm. Don't spend the right t- don't spend the wrong type of money and don't do uh, what, are, un- what are called unauthorized commitments where you tell the contracting officer, sure, do that. And they go off and run and do it. And, and you're like, why didn't you do that? <laughs> In other words, write it down, right? Once you learn the basics of that, then you can really dig into the FAR and realize that it, it is really a, it's a platform for creative contracting. So my second skill set that I think contracting officers really need, in addition to the foundation of you have to like to read stuff, hence like a lawyer, but you also have to like the creativity. You have to like the, the, the rabbit trail you'll get down when you go into FAR Part 15, and then you end up in FAR Part 12, and then you realize that FAR 13.5 is kind of a combination of FAR Part 12 and FAR Part... If you like that puzzle, which that's the third thing, if you like puzzle solving, because every acquisition is a puzzle. Sometimes it's a really easy one, which is a copy and paste from last time. Other times it's, well, we could do it that way. Let's try this. Other times it's never been done before and you got to figure it out. And then the fourth thing is you got to like to communicate because the, the thing that I, I noticed made me a better contracting officer later in my career was the ability to communicate and, and even sell ideas to my customer or, or to the lawyer <laughs> or to the economic decider or, or to the contractor is you have all these different players, these deciders who have different inputs at different times. Granted, you're one of them. But as the contracting officer, you have a, a, a team that you're involved with. You're, I won't say you're leading them. You just happen to be signing the contract. But there are lots of people you have to be able to communicate with. So the ability to communicate and listen and understand other people's perspectives will oftentimes make things harder to get off the ground. We talk about the acquisition time zones. So the RFP zone and then the market research zone, the, those are the, the middle zones, right? So mm-hmm. let me back up for a second. Requirement zone, it's the first zone. Then there's the market research zone. Then there's the RFP zone and there's the selection zone, the pre-award process, right? The more you're talking to people during that market research zone and even during the requirement zone and communicating, what are we trying to do? What problem are we solving for the government? And then that's the requirement zone. And then during the market research zone, we're figuring out how can industry solve it? All of that takes communication. And I, I wish I had been better at that in my early career where I, I would say, well, I, I have to decide. Yes, you do, but you don't have to decide in a vacuum. <laughs> that was that was the wake up call for me is about five years in, I realized, wow, there's a lot of people that can provide input that can really make this go more smoothly just because they're not in the far chain because they're not contracting people. They might be industry. They might be somebody else. But that understanding of the communication is, is critical. And we, we talk about the, the acquisition time zones just to give you some context on that in episode number three, way back in the day. And I just talked for like three minutes straight there. So your turn. <laughs> well, uh, like I said, it is a complicated process. It's something that still goes over my head after hearing your your insights. But I, I think it's helpful, especially for, you know, from the candidate perspective, sort of seeing what's going on in the background before a contract is awarded or all of the players that are involved. I know that from a recruiting perspective, it's something that I find helpful now and something I may need to constantly Google. Uh, well, so can you remind us again where folks can tune in to listen to your podcast? So if you look in uh, Apple Apple Podcasts or Google Play, look for Contracting Officer Podcast. And then our website is contractpodcast.com. 
and you'll be able to see and search all 330 some episodes. Wonderful. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in. And if you want more career advice, more defense contracting advice, more advice on any of the government inner workings, you can visit news.clearancejobs.com. This is Katie Keller, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of ClearedCast. For more information on career and recruiting advice, visit news.clearancejobs.com.